Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on the uh, on the show today, we'll talk with those involved with an exhibit opening today at Southern University New Orleans, addressing the transitions experienced by those who are formerly incarcerated. Also, the history of the pig and the use of the pig, the whole pig, in the food of the South. But first, our region is dotted with ghost towns, places that are no longer inhabited because of major environmental shifts, either natural or man-made. When industry brings toxic pollution to town, black residents are often in the crosshairs for relocation. In the next part of our series, Place Erased, Drew Hawkins from the Gulf States Newsroom has the story about the fight for the remains of a displaced town. In the South, cemeteries are often more than just burial grounds. They're active, full of life, places where families gather to clean and decorate the graves. The Reveal Town Cemetery was a place of refuge for Marla Dickerson. Generations of her family members are buried here, and the memories bring her to tears. And we would come here, and we would just sit down, and she would point out where all the family members were buried. So it wasn't ever a sad occasion. It was just something that we did to celebrate our family. So, excuse me. That hum you hear in the background is a chemical plant right next door. Giant steel storage tanks and smokestacks tower over the graves. There's nothing peaceful about being near a chemical company. In 1881, Reveal Town was founded by formerly enslaved people on the banks of the Mississippi River, about 20 miles outside Baton Rouge. And for decades, it was a tight, close-knit community of about 100 or so residents. You know, it was a peaceful peaceful town with two streets. Majority of us were all related um, in some way, shape, or form, either by blood or by marriage. They established a cemetery where it exists today. Marla Dickerson even has a copy of the original handwritten deed. It goes back beyond my great-great-great-grandmother. She was a a former uh, enslaved person. But then, in the 1970s, they got some new neighbors. Georgia Pacific built the first chemical plant about a thousand feet from town. And as the site grew, it pumped out more and more pollution. Marla Dickerson remembers how a white powder, polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, spewed out of the plant, covering everything, including people's gardens. Everyone who was like my grandmother's age grew a garden. But plants started to die, grass started to die, and so the water would turn different colors. For the chemical companies, the site next to Reveal Town had all of the characteristics to be a jackpot for manufacturing vinyl and industrial products. And that meant the town became one of the many sacrifice zones that dot the region, another place ravaged by heavy industry. But Marla's mom, Janice, wouldn't let her hometown go without a fight. In Louisiana, Janice Dickerson is a legendary environmental justice icon. But back then, she was just a concerned resident. My mama started to do some research, and um, eventually a suit was filed. And so from that suit, we were relocated. Dickerson got the EPA involved and proved that there were dangerous levels of toxic waste in the air, soil, and water in Reveal Town. And by 1987, all of the residents were relocated and the chemical companies had to pay for it. There was nothing else that drove her. That was her passion. If there was an injustice, she was going to see to it that that injustice was going to be handled, taken care of, slain. 
The town was gone. The cemetery was all that remained. And the community wanted to keep using it. But that toxic neighbor, the chemical company next door, decided to claim it. It's very, it's very complex. Uh, <laughs> Chris Meeks is an attorney who worked with Janice Dickerson. Now, we could tell a whole other story about the complex legal wrangling over this quarter-acre patch of grass and bones. True legal entity, juridical entity, possession, French Roman law. The bottom line is, the companies say it's theirs. And that original handwritten deed, it just doesn't hold up. There's just no one around to tell us. I mean, they're all dead. They've been long gone. Dickerson and the residents of Revealed Town sued the chemical companies for control of the cemetery. And while the lawsuits were ongoing, nobody could be buried there. Law enforcement once stopped a woman's funeral in progress, leaving a freshly dug grave open. Janice Dickerson was there, and she told local TV reporters that she tried to stop them. And they will not take this grave over my dead body. But in the end, that woman's family wasn't able to bury her next to her husband. The lawsuits went on for years, and they were still going on when Janice Dickerson died in 2021. And the chemical companies tried to stop her from being buried there as well. It was scary. I lost a lot of sleep over it. I know, um, I know Marla and her family did as well. The woman who had fought for Reveal Town and this cemetery for her entire life couldn't be buried next to her ancestors. It was an agonizing choice, but Meeks had to drop the case. And, you know, of course, it, it was always very simple to Janice. We've always been burying our people there. Our ancestors are there. My mother's there. My, you know, everyone is there. Um, so how can this possibly be a complicated issue? This isn't a unique problem. There is a long racist legacy of black land theft and black cemetery erasure, especially in the Deep South. Do you think that you would have had there'd be this much trouble, this much difficulty if it were historically white? Cemetery. Oh, well, that's a really good question. I have to say that I don't, I don't think a historically white cemetery would be would face even a tenth of the uh, of this troubles. Meek says he and Marla Dickerson are planning additional legal action. They'll continue to fight until the descendants of Reveal Town have complete control over the cemetery, and their ancestors can finally rest in peace. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Drew Hawkins. And the story is the second in a new series from the Gulf States Newsroom called Place Erased. In the next story, we'll travel to coastal Mississippi, where there's a town that's been wiped off the map but hasn't been abandoned. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Just a few weeks ago, we brought you a conversation about death behind bars, where we looked at unnatural deaths for those who are incarcerated. Today, we're discussing the opposite, life beyond bars. At least that's the title of a new innovative photo voice exhibition that delves into the lives of formerly incarcerated people. The exhibit, which was created with the Formerly Incarcerated Transitions Clinic, opens today at Southern University, New Orleans. Here to tell us a little bit more about this exhibit, the stories the participants seek to share, and the larger message that they hope to send, we have Anjali Yogi, professor at Tulane University and director of the formerly incarcerated Transitions Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Also with us, we're joined by Photo Voice participant Desiree Morrison. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me as well. So Anjali, 
Can you start by telling us about the formerly incarcerated Transitions Clinic? What are the goals of the organization? Where did the idea come from? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Louisiana is the, well, the U.S. is the incarceration capital of the world. And within the U.S., Louisiana, and within Louisiana, unfortunately, it's Orleans Parish. And what we also know is that people who are incarcerated tend to have more health problems than people who are out in the general population. Um, and so when they are incarcerated, they may be getting some health care. But then after release, people were people are usually just released without any follow up care for medical, mental, dental, substance use, all of those things. Now, I um, I work at a, a public hospital, so I started working at charity and currently work at UMC Hospital. And so a lot of people, when they're released from uh, from incarceration, would show up in our uh, emergency rooms and, and hospitalized to my service. And in conversations with people, it turned out that, you know, they'd recently been released from some facility and perhaps hadn't been released with medications or given any really um, information about what to do for their health care needs at release. And so that was really the start of the formerly incarcerated transitions clinic. And our mission really is to, to have health equity for people who have been impacted by mass incarceration. And I think one of the greatest strengths of our program is that we have two community health workers. And these community health workers have both have histories of incarceration themselves. And so who they contact is someone who understands where you're coming from and has navigated reentry themselves. Now, Desiree, let's turn this over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with this clinic? What was your reaction when you first heard about plans for an exhibition about experiences of those who were who, who have been behind bars? My experience with, with the ladies have been that a lot of them, in my opinion, could have avoided incarceration if those needs that were really screaming that they needed help, such as a lot of them were in domestic violence situations and felt like they had no hope. Um, a lot of them were on substances, they were abusing substances. And a lot of times when you know you get involved with different drugs, to cope with life because you feel like that's the only thing that you can do at that time. Well, it leads you to doing things that would cause you to one day be incarcerated, like stealing or robbing, you know, something like that. And when these things are not addressed and you just throw these women in prison or jail, if there is no help once they are out and if there is no resources when they are in, you're just going to see a high repeat of the same person with the same issues year after year after year. Now, as far as my experience, knowing that this clinic existed, I was thrilled. Um, I was, I guess you could say fortunate because I did not have to rely on any state um, handouts. When I came home from prison, I went home to my father and my, you know, my family. And the thing that really got me, because I did a test, that was a booklet that was given to me while I was incarcerated, right before I left, because I had to I had to attend a reentry class. And a reentry class, they give you this big booklet that's supposed to be full of resources. And in Louisiana, so it doesn't matter what part of Louisiana that you're going into, you should be able to find resources to help you. That was not one. As far as mental health, as far as health care, zero, zero. 
We're speaking about the formerly incarcerated transitions clinic and about a new exhibit called Life Beyond Bars that the clinic has put on. We're speaking with Desiree Morrison, a participant in the organization's new exhibition, and with Anjali Niyogi, a professor at Tulane University and director of the clinic. Anjali, tell us a little bit about what this exhibit looks like and, and sounds like. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in our work, one of the things that we learned early on was that incarceration itself is an, is an incredibly traumatic experience. And so we, um, adjacent to the former incarcerated transitions clinic, we started a peer support group. We know that there's these staggering statistics about incarceration in Louisiana and Orleans Parish, but we really wanted to show people who's behind those numbers. We really wanted to share stories. We asked people who were formerly incarcerated to participate and to share with us photographs, photographs before they were incarcerated, during incarceration, and after incarceration. And these photographs really were the, um, were the roots to have more robust conversations. And through these conversations, we learned about people throughout their trajectory. We learned about their childhood and their childhood dreams. We learned about what they had to do to survive incarceration, and then what kind of challenges and successes they've had and what their reentry process has been like. You know, many people have been away from communities for years to decades. And so coming back home in itself is almost a, a new culture. And so we really wanted to, pro to provide, you know, a storytelling medium so that we could show people throughout that entire trajectory and really humanize what incarceration is doing to people. Desiree, you were asked to share your story for this. I'd like to hear about what your experience was sharing your story, you know, some of the emotions that arose for you discussing this. Um, first, it was it was hurt. Um, it was sorrow. Um, then it turned into laughter. It, then it turned into hope, you know, not for just myself, but for others. As a mother, you know, I don't know how it feels for a mother to be taken away from her children because you committed a crime. But in my situation, I was innocent and I was, you know, sentenced to serve time in a Louisiana state prison for women. And that in itself was very traumatic for me. I have never in my life been to prison. And to go to prison for something that I didn't do was just, it was really, I think I want to say, um, it, it was more than traumatic for me. Um, I know it affected my kids. They have been with their mother all their life. And just in an instant of a couple of hours, she's gone and she's not coming back, you know, for a while. So it was very traumatic for me. But to to be able to share my story, it opened my eyes to a lot of things that need to be fixed in the state of Louisiana when it comes down to um, the residents who are convicted, whether you're guilty or not. Prison is going to affect you. You're going to need help. You're going to need outside help. And if those resources are not there, it's going to be rough. It's going to be really, 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 really rough to avoid going back to the place that you really don't want to be. Angelina Yogi is professor at Tulane University and director of the formerly incarcerated Transitions Clinic. And Desiree Morrison is a participant in this exhibition's Photo Voice Project. The exhibit opens today at the Leonard S. Washington Memorial Library at Southern University, New Orleans. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Adam. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. It's suddenly autumn, a season where food comes to the forefront with 
multiple food-centric holidays with roots in the traditional harvest festivals of the Northern Hemisphere, for instance. And so what better time to talk about one source of food integral to Louisiana's food traditions? We're talking about the pig. It's pork. It was the 1700s when the Spanish brought hogs to Florida. It turns out pigs are really good at surviving off the land, and the explosion of the pig population later led to pork finding a prominent place on dishes across the New World. Switch to Louisiana, where pig roasts are among the traditional ways communities would ensure the pig was used, leaving little to waste where every little bit of a resource mattered. From Boudin to barbecue, pork has been part of a culinary tradition passed through the generations. To talk about the place the pig plays in the food traditions of Louisiana, we have with us Southern food historian Jessica B. Harris, author of High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. Jessica will be headlining the 2023 Food Forum at the Historic New Orleans Collection on Saturday. It's called Pigtails, and it focuses on the history of pork in our regional cuisines. So, Jessica, name for us some of the regional dishes where pork plays a central role to us Southerners. Oh, well, I mean, if you're taking it into the general South, obviously barbecue. Barbecue is kind of the preeminent porkery, if you will. I think certainly in Southern Louisiana, you get the boucherie, you get all of the things that come out of the boucherie, you get boudin, you get oh, choris, uh, and my own personal favorite, which is crackling. Uh, there is an African-American expression, or I don't know if it's an African-American expression or something that was foisted on us, but it has been said that we eat everything on the pork from the rooter to the tutor. So um, from when you start talking about, you know, nose to tail cuisine and cooking all of the animals, certainly the almighty pig is a prime candidate. Tell me why cracklin is your favorite. Because I just love it. Um, I grew up eating chicharron in New York, uh, which is basically a variant, a um, sort of Puerto Rican Dominican variant on cracklin. But um, when I got to Louisiana, it was like, oh, my God. And then I went face down in cracklin. And that's that. <laughs> Tell us about some of the uses for pork that were specifically driven by that desire to make the best use of the pig possible. Parts of the pig that might otherwise have gone to waste. Well, crackling, pig skin, something that people don't necessarily think of as being tasty and edible, but certainly is. In the African-American culinary lexicon, you get pig's feet, you get pig's tail, you get hog's head cheese. And some of those things flip over into other, other parts of the culinary lexicon. So, you know, I think that we, we do a pretty good job in the South. I've even seen pig's lips in uh, big old glass jars in roadside food markets in Mississippi. So we eat all of it. Switching over to the traditions and historical practices, making use of the pig. We mentioned the hog roast. What's the breadth of the traditions surrounding the pig? Well, I mean, I think you, you mentioned the introduction of the pig into this hemisphere. Uh, what we often forget is at the time that we were looking at this hemisphere, at this time that this hemisphere was being developed, Spain wasn't that far out from the Inquisition. And so pig and pork eating was important in Spain because it became a tell, if you will, a test. Muslims didn't eat pork. 
people of the Jewish faith didn't eat pork. So pork eating, and in some very unpleasant cases, the force feeding of pork to people as a trial became very much part of, of Spanish culinary culture. And then, of course, once here, with those pigs that are now tearing up our levees and stuff, became very, very much a part of just American culinary habit. Uh, tell me about the pig. You mentioned parts of the pig that you just wouldn't think are that tasty. How much, from a culinary perspective, is it about how tasty it is versus how much it's able to absorb flavors from the rest of what you throw in the pot? Well, I mean, I think that's a question that basically has to do with all animal proteins. What is it the protein itself or is it the things that go with it? I think in terms of pig, it's usually a fairly sweet meat. And so it takes to things that are slightly sweet and sour all the way through to things that are absolutely salty, savory, so that there is a wide range of possibility in terms of the kinds of tastes that can go with pork in one way or another. And I think the the whole question becomes, what do you do with it? How do you do what you do with it? I mean, if you look at just the variance of barbecue styles throughout the American South, from the mustard to the ketchup to the special white sauces in some regions, all of those things, just another way of bringing flavor to this particular meat, and all of them tasty. You mentioned the Spanish. What is it about this intermingling between what the Spanish started and Black traditions and the traditions of all the other people in Louisiana mixing together to create a unique culinary tradition? How did they start affecting each other? Well, let's let's historically take that on a little bit. Don't forget that Spain was African for 700 years. Okay, it was ruled by the Moors. The Moors, while we think of them as coming exclusively from the Middle East, there was a great North African contingent and connection there. So these things were already mixed when they were coming from Spain to this hemisphere. Here they mix with native people who, of course, hadn't had pig, but who had other things that they were cooking and other meats that they were eating. And so when you get this whole thing coming together, you've just got a, I'm going to use a term that I don't think is necessarily true, but you've got a melting pot. You've got a cauldron in which all of these culinary traditions, the Native American, the African American, and the early African American, where there's so much African involved in it, and the European American. In this case, the Spaniards, but then that gets rooted on through the French and no small amount of the English. And finally, speculate with me a little bit, if you would, where do you think we would be gastronomically had the Spanish not introduced the hog to North America in the 16th century? What do you think we'd be eating instead? Or do you think it was a foregone conclusion? No, I think I think we'd be eating venison. I think we'd be eating a lot of things. They also brought beef cattle, so we would arguably be eating beef. But the bottom line is the people who were here, the native peoples who were here, were eating. So it's not as though they were starving and pork saved everybody's life. You know, pork just provided a different 
animal protein to the animal proteins that were already being consumed. So I think we'd be eating lots of stuff. I think it would be just as tasty. It just wouldn't be pork. <laughs> Jessica B. Harris, author of High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. You'll be able to find Jessica Harris at the Historic New Orleans Collection on Saturday during the 2023 Food Forum, focusing on the history of pork and regional cuisines. Jessica, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so very much for having me. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.